You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. 38, four kids, 16 to 6. Um, enjoying life, loving Simpsonville, loving, loving date night, loving Greenville. Uh, uh, one decade that I not particularly care for was my 20s, when I think back in memories. I felt like 20s, um, particularly in our, in our country, in our culture, was a false advertisement. You know, like when you're a kid and you're watching Beverly Hills 90210, you're thinking, 20s, gainfully employed, easy. You know, like some of those romantic comedies, I'll probably be in some corner office with like, I'm an architect now, I'm a journalist, I'm telling all the 40-year-olds what to do, this is great, I look great, I'm in the shape of my life. And there's some cute person, and they're, they're at work, and they just kind of stumble into my lap, and everything's, you know, we have one little, like, problem in Act 2 for about 20 minutes, and then we just come back and get married. Like, it's, 20s is the decade that everybody, you know, is trying to get to when, when you're in the modern, you know, culture. 20s is not what it's, it's, it's made out to be. 20s, to me, I mean, not for me, but certainly for Kyra, was about morning sickness. I mean, it was me working as a teacher in the public high school where the kids are just yelling at me. I'm not in the corner office. I'm in the basement with that stapler and that $275 from Greenville County Schools, like, buy extra export, you know, whiteboard markers. You know, my car's getting dinged in the parking lot by high schoolers. Like, the 20s was just not, was just, was just not it for me. Uh, and on top of that, you know, being married, the 20s was just this long saga of understanding that I was way more selfish than I could have ever imagined in my marriage. It's like, oh my goodness, I guess I just thought life was completely about me. And it was running, kicking, and screaming all, all, all throughout my, my 20s. And so, you know, if I, if I could go back, if I could go back, I think what would help me, I think, catch my bearings maybe and, and find a little um, uh, clarity in, in some of that confusion is really, for me, the 20s, maybe like some of you guys, was a, was a big decade of transition. It was a big transition phase. And, and I wish I could go back and tell myself that because uh, as much as we say that we like change and say that we like transition, if we're really talking about that word, transition, we don't like transition, <laughs> We don't like transition because this is the way I'm kind of thinking about transition, defining it there on the screen, is, is transition is essentially um, saying goodbye. And, uh, and, and we, we have a category for that, like mourning, grieving, saying goodbye to like a lost one or if we were to, you know, get a breakup or, or you know, walk away from a job. But really in your 20s, uh, there's, there's a bunch of informal and subtle and between the lines type of goodbyes that you're saying that you don't even, nobody even asked you to say goodbye to. All of those habits and rhythms and the ways that you rested and relaxed, like when you got married, you said goodbye to those things, and nobody asked you for that permission. Um, uh, if, you, um, if you are a parent and you have kids, um, essentially what is happening through the transition of the kids in those years is as that kid is turning 10, you're saying goodbye to that nine-year-old kid. You're saying goodbye to what once was. And in the meantime, transitions also mean you're having to accept uh, the reality not of what you wish would be or what you thought it was going to be, but what is. You're walking into that new season of life in that transition, and you're having to come to terms with whatever it is that you thought was going to happen, unless you can tell the future, is not what is actually happening, and that's super hard. And in the meantime, you're also in these points of transition, although you're tempted to run back into the past or tempted to run away from the present, time is moving forward, and it's demanding of you that you are making decisions about what's going to be happening in the future. And you're having to decide that even if there was sorrow and ugliness and hardship in your past, there was a baby in that bathwater. 
And there has to be a decision right now, and nobody can make the decision for you about what you are going to leave behind and what you are going to take with you, and nobody can make that choice for you except for you. And so those transitions are these really hard moments that I think that all of us are in in one stage or another. I know um, uh, a lot of us over here that I see, I know some of the uh, uh, swoo people and one-lifers over here are in this gap year season. You could probably remember being in that gap year between you know, college and and. Uh, in professional life, and, and you're trying to figure out what you're leaving behind, accepting what is, and figuring out what you're going to decide next. Some of you guys are moving to Greenville. We have 79.2 people moving to Greenville every single day, apparently, and some of you guys are basically fresh into that, and you're trying to realize as you're making, uh, 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 as you're getting accommodated to this new season, what exactly it is that you left behind. Maybe it's the culture, maybe it's uh, friendship, maybe it's just a gym that you liked. And all of those things are, are being accredited and being added up into this transition that is, that is this leaving us exactly where we are, to leave uh, behind what is in the past, to accept what's in the present, and to make decisions about what we're going to do into the future. And so we open up into Acts chapter 8, and what we are experiencing in Acts chapter 8 is a church in transition. This entire book, actually, as we talked about in Acts chapter 1, uh, is a book that we need to lens through a transitional church. We are realizing that not everything that's happening in this book is always, uh, not all of it is um, sometimes, and not all of it is never, that there, there's things that is happening in this transition through phases um, on the screens of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In other words, that the gospel starts in a place where everything is 100% Jewish, it moves to a place where everything is about 50% Jewish, and ends up in a place where things are 0% Jewish. As you move away from the center of the circle, you're growing more towards unfamiliarity, unfriendliness, and uncertainty. And so the church is constantly moving in transition. And so where we are in chapter 8, if you look at the circle, is we've crossed the line of 100% Jewish, and we've moved into the second circle, which is the half-breed Samaritan people. And we're moving into Samaria, and we are experiencing transition. So this is what Matt read just a moment ago, and this is where we're picking up. It says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Samaritans were hated by the Jews um, because uh, they didn't go through the exile. Um, they weren't considered part of, of the Jewish law. Um, they had basically intermingled with the Gentiles around them and now no longer fit into the category fully of Gentile, no longer fit into the category of Jew. They were just kind of these hated half-breeds that lived around them. And so we're moving into the interior of the Samaritan region, and we're experiencing a painful transition. This is what it says in the next verse. Godly men buried Stephen, one of their, their forefathers, one of their George Washingtons is risen up in the faith to preach his sermon only to be killed at the hands of the Sanhedrin. They mourn from him deeply and Saul, this persecutor of the church, begins to destroy the church, tears it to pieces. He goes from house to house and he drags off both men, women, and I'm assuming children, sparing no one and puts them into prison. So we're experiencing in Acts chapter 8 a painful transition that's also extremely purposeful. It says in the next verse that those who had been scattered began to preach the word everywhere they went, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there, and people were saved and healed and delivered. So this is the most important part about Acts chapter 8, because when it is that we read Acts chapter 8, we have to remember in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 that Acts chapter 8 verse 1 is only existing because of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That an Acts 8, 1 church doesn't exist without an Acts 1, 8 church. 
And Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this, backing into verse 7. He says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates. I'm not going to tell you how this is happening or where it's going to happen next. But just know that I hold the authority. And an Acts 8, 1 church cannot forget that they are also an Acts 1, 8 church. An Acts 1, 8 church is this. You will receive power when you receive, uh, you receive power from the Holy Spirit when it comes on to you, and you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and where? Samaria and the ends of the earth. In other words, the persecution not only couldn't stop uh, the spread of the gospel, it actually spread the gospel. It scattered the people. The persecution in God's providence was doing exactly what God had planned it to do. Even in the persecution, God was present and used even evil and persecution to do his purposes and turned it for his good so that his mission would get accomplished. So do you remember in high school and the, uh, the teacher would run out of things for you to do to give you a little busy work thing and they'd give you that, that word search. Remember the word search? And the word search is you have to go there and race your little buddy about how many find turkey and Thanksgiving and Halloween. And so there's a little bit of a word search that I want us to do today that you'll find in, in your Bibles, uh, whatever translation you have. And the word that we're going to look for is this word attention. Yes, this word attention. Anybody here have attention deficit disorder? So it's very important, attention. Attention is, is, is a big deal in the book of Acts. You'll notice there's, there's lots of directives for people's attention. Like, for example, um, the angel that comes to the disciples after the, Jesus ascends, and they said, why are you looking? Why are you looking at the sky? Or, or when, when Peter starts off his sermon, the first thing he says is, hey, listen, listen. Remember that? Or, or what about when, when, when Peter and Paul, or, or when Peter and John are, are going up to the gate beautiful, and, um, and that lame man comes up to him and asks him for money, and he says, hey, hey, hey. As you're, as you're talking to me, I want you to look at me. This is what he says. I want you to look at me. Gold and silver I have, I have not. All I have to you, what I do have is the spirit. Get up and walk. Remember what he says? He says, look at me. Or what, what about Stephen when he's, getting, he's persecuted and martyred? Is that Stephen's eyes, the author Luke talks a lot about his eyes gazing up into the top. And this is the reason why I think it's important. Because what is it that's most important about a witness except where their attention is? Like if there's a dude right now that's outside robbing your car, and I'm talking to you, right? And the police comes over and asks you, hey, like, can you be a witness for this crime that happened on the parking lot? You know what the problem is? That you won't be able to be a witness? Is if you weren't watching, right? Like, if I, if I came to you and, and asked you, hey, how good do you think that children's ministry went, and did, you know, the point get across, did the kids behave, and did they, you know, do what they're supposed to do? Well, you're going to be a little bit at a disadvantage. You know why? Because you're not downstairs paying attention to what's going on, right? And so what's the idea is I think that Luke is doing all these attention-grabbing words throughout the entire book of Acts, because you can't witness if you're not paying attention. Is that actually the spirit, as it said in Acts chapter 2, has fallen off all flesh, but it won't matter to you if you're not paying attention. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, to turn your affections on Jesus, to see the struggle and the, and the, and, and the tumult and the persecution and the problems that are going on around you, all of that is not going to matter. You're not going to be able to witness and be full of the spirit unless your eyes are cast and your ears are listening and paying attention to what Jesus is doing. And that makes all the difference for a church that is an Acts 1 moment to remember what Jesus said in Acts 8.1, that everything that they are seeing is only happening because of what they said. So this is what I think that Acts 1 wants to come out and witness to us today. And what I think if you were to open your eyes and ears and consider your story and consider your picture within the photo album of God's church, that Jesus is trying to get your attention to say to you, these are the three things that I think he would say through this passage. The first is this, is that if every Acts 8.1 season has only been sovereignly put under the reign of an of a, of a Jesus claim of Acts 1.8, is this is what this means. Number one is that God, God is in this with you. 
right? This is what it must mean. God is not down the street. God is not stuck in some previous season of your life. And God is not just waiting at the other end of a carrot for you to go and meet with him. No, God's in this with you. And not just the best fuzzy parts of the things that make sense to you and the moment when all the calm went away and when the worship chord just hit the right thing and you felt good about it. No, God's in the persecution because God's using all things and turning them for good for those that are called according to his purposes. The second thing I think that Acts 1.8 and Acts 8.1 will tell us is that God has got this. Lucky for me and lucky for you, this is not on you. This is not on your abilities. This is not on your your wits, this is not on your endurance, this is not on your strength, this is on him. And he's bringing you to the end of yourself by hook or by hook to realize in this transition, you don't got this. God has this, and he's always had this, and that's what this whole thing is all about. This is not about you, this is about him. And lastly, not only God is in this, that he's got this, but he's on the other side of this. That like literally, as we talked about even in the remembrance of this church, is like, he knew the people that would be in this room on October the 9th in 2022, the day, October 7th, 2012, everybody started the church in Camelot. None of us knew what it was, but he's there, and he's waiting us for us to get there. He's already set the whole plan in motion, and so Acts 8.1 only happens in light of Acts 1.8. God is in this, God's got this, and God's on the other side of this. So on the, other, uh, on the day that grace persecution, great persecution broke out against the church, this is uh, Acts 8.1, in Jerusalem, all except the apostles were scattered. One of the big words you'll see in this uh, chapter is the word joy. You'll never see the word sorrow in this passage. You'll only see joy. The reader's supposed to make a, a, credit, a gap, really, of understanding where, where is this joy coming from. One of the things they must be joyful about is that if you look, the first generation apostles are still in Jerusalem. The church had babies. These people that are sending out, preaching the gospel, seeing healings, this isn't just like George Washington. This is like the disciples of the disciples, there is a generational blessing that's being handed down, and it's the second generation that gets scattered to Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Verse 4, those who had scattered, preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. You guys remember when COVID first broke out? We thought it was going to be like 14 days. They were like, just 14 days, stop the spread. It's funny, the exact opposite. Like, we take this for granted because we see the ending of the story. The conclusion of what's happening in verse 3, according to just human nature, does not turn into Acts 4. A heavily persecuted, painful moment in the church should not turn around and not only stop the church, but spread the church in the matter of one verse. Something's missing. Something must be working between the lines. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip, saw the signs and wonders like witnesses do, they all paid, there it is, close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, shrieks and impure spirits, uh, all these, all these um, demons came out of people. And many people were paralyzed and lame and they were healed. And so there was great joy in the city. We've been reading this book, me and Kyra together, called The Resilient Child. And The Resilient Child, according to uh, Catherine Koch, I think is the, the doctor's name, the lady that wrote it, is the opposite of a fragile child. Like um, the, the fragile child will go to the tryout and miss the team and just accept that as their destiny, as their identity, and never try out again because they don't know how to handle the setback of trying out for the team. The, the resilient child could have one grandparent pass away but not lose their opportunity to love and be in the moment with their second grandparent. 
because they know how to experience pain and, and face it with resilience. The, um, the fragile child would read and get made fun of and, and, and just accept that they're illiterate and never go back and, and learn how to read and, and, and so forth. And so really, the author talks about the difference, the separator between a resilient child and a fragile child is really just this question, how does that kid learn how to deal with pain? Will they fear everything and run or face everything and rise is what the author talks about. And so as, as, as helicopter parents, you know, we'll put bubble tape around people. Like, it's important that, like, when that kid comes and talks about the teacher, you know, as, even as Christian parents, we're not trying to offer comfort. We're trying to offer conformity to Christ. And so even if the teacher did six things wrong, we're asking the kid, what's the four things you can do better, Right? Because you're going to be thrust into unfair circumstances, so if you're fragile, you'll just buckle to whatever the teacher says, but if you're resilient, you'll know what to do. And that's what matters most out of this situation, right? Like the, the resilient parent is, is looking not just for perfection, for progress. Like I know that you made the shot, but like what is it that, that worked about that? And even if you failed, you probably did something right, and so let's talk about where the progress is. Not necessarily did you win or lose, did you succeed or fail. The resilient kid can understand a sense of depth perception about where their feet are. The resilient parent is not just going to, you know, inebriate people with ice cream and just kind of give them gifts to get them to stop feeling bad about themselves. They allow them the process of pain because pain is the gift that allows us to rise. And so the church is in a defining moment, right, because they're in a, a, a season, an episode of excruciating pain. I mean, don't read past this. This is your kid that just got killed. Jesus, where were you? Blessed to be a blessing, Come to me, all you are weary, laden, and I'll give you rest. My kid just got killed. How about that? My dad is gone. My home is gone. My livelihood is gone. I'm in prison. Like, this is pain. This is a moment. This is a moment, a defining moment. And it's unexpected outcome. And it's not the expected outcome that this church, instead of running, decides to rise. And I think that the secret, I think that the secret, right, to the church that has its attention on Jesus in a moment of pain, it lies right here. In verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. The, the process of becoming a resilient church is not to ignore pain, but it's to mourn it. I think that this is what the snapshot is giving us from, from the book of Acts, is showing us that the foundation, the furnace of this church, the church is not a pain avoider. You are not made to wake up and ask yourself how to make my life as easy as possible. You are called to follow Jesus through straight lines of pain. And the church that that becomes its 8-1 eight, its, its eight form and its 1-8 destiny, learns how to deal with pain. And here's the secret. The secret is not inebriating, avoiding, ignoring, channeling, coping. It's mourning pain. It's crying with Jesus to meet his comfort. And an individual, a saint, a brother, a sister, a church, can do, can do no ministry, painful ministry, unless it learns to mourn. Unless it learns to mourn, because in the mourning is the strength. In the morning is the comfort. In the morning is the presence because God is in this right here where we are. And so this is my question to you. It's an important question. It's maybe the one of the most important questions I could ask you is this question is where is your pain? Because you know well as I, probably looking outside the window rather than the mirror, but maybe in the mirror as well. If you don't identify your pain, your pain will shape you. You will become your pain. It's not a question if you have it or not. It's like whether or not you are, are dealing with it. And, and here's the other point of it, is everything in an Acts 1-8 church to be a bold witness to the ends of the earth, the distance between you and that version of you is pain. You know how I know that? Because if it wasn't painful, you'd probably be doing it. 
The distance between us, right, and, and, the, and the shape that God has called us to be is, is boredom and jealousy and confrontation and dealing with people. Think about all the people. Think about the top five people that you admire in your life, right? Now think about the opposite, right? All the people that, that you probably wouldn't have a lot of respect for, probably don't have an honor. Isn't the difference between them just that the four, first group has a threshold for pain? That the, first, that, 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 that the people that, that are walking and daily becoming the image of Jesus are learning how to have good, healthy conflict, are doing things that nobody else wants to do, are ready to serve, ready to say sorry, ready to learn, ready to be humble, right? Isn't this the, 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 the formative place where the shape and the identity of the church is being formed right here in the face of persecution where Jesus is with them? They cry out to them. Instead of running, they rise. Instead of running, they rise into this place of becoming an Acts 1-8 church, to be full of power, to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. So what the book will oftentimes do in the Bible, let alone Acts, is to, to have this big zoom out of a big commotion that happens in the crowd and then zoom into a certain individual in that crowd. So the individual that we're looking at in the, in the mass of the Samaritans is, is Simon, the magician, the David Blaine, right, of, uh, of Acts 8. And it says about this guy, Simon, now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was somebody great. And all the people, both high and low, gave them, oh, there it is, their attention, and exclaimed, this man rightly called, is rightly called the great power of God. And they followed him because they were amazed for a long time of his sorcery. And they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed, and watch this, Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that they saw. So what you see in Acts chapter 8, in the very beginning, or Acts chapter 8, verse 9, the second little section about Simon, is there is a, a record of attention. Like it says, basically, in the beginning, this whole culture was really formed around this magician, this sorcerer, that all of their attention could not get away from Simon the sorcerer until Philip showed up that the Spirit of God was greater than the sorcery, and so the attention went from the sorcerer to the Spirit, except, except for Simon. It seems that Simon must have loved being great and being called great and being called the great power of God, and so his eyes actually didn't go from the sorcery to the Spirit. It went from the sorcery to Philip. I don't know if you uh, know of this or maybe have struggled with this in the past, but um, it would make me nervous uh, sometimes in, in coming off of, uh, of preaching as a, as a younger preacher in youth ministry or whatever else. Um, people would come, come up to me and they would talk about uh, to me from the message about certain individual names within the larger Christian community and church. Like it reminds me of this one thing that, you know, Joseph Prince said or it reminded me of this one thing that Rick Warren said or this reminded me of one thing that Matt Chandler said. Like there's this attachment to this name that everything was being viewed through that filter. And it kind of troubled me, right? Because I think what this passage is basically talking about is there is a very easy way to be a part of the church where our eyes are actually more on the church than on Jesus. And so we see how this is going to vet out as time goes on. So verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. In my study, there's a kind of a cringeworthy uh, throwback here where in Luke chapter 9, uh, uh, the last time that John and Peter were in Samaria, they're asking Jesus to bring fire down on judgment on Samaria. <laughs> Jesus, do you want us to call fire down and judgment on Samaria? And I'm just glad that even though we are in a church and we are all following and, and leading and shepherding and being a part of, of a church that is led by people, ultimately we're in a church that's led by Jesus. And I'm thankful that the fire that 
Peter and John were talking about back in Luke 9 was about judgment, whereas the fire that Jesus is about to bring is about compassion. And Jesus is running his church and transforms Peter and John to offer a different message and a different tone in this verse. When they arrived, they prayed for the brand new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So I talked about this in Acts 1, and so I probably won't repeat myself too much. As we read the Bible, we're always looking for the always and the sometimes and the never. And in my understanding, there's only three instances of somebody being baptized by water and then secondarily being baptized by the Holy Spirit. To me, the language is more about filling than it is about baptism. I think in these two occasions, why did Luke include it? It's because you need to show the before and after. You need to show the church before the Holy Spirit, which can do nothing, and the church after the Holy Spirit, which does everything in Christ Jesus. Really, what we're talking about, I think of, when we're talking about experiencing and expressing things that don't make sense without the Holy Spirit, I think we're talking about uh, Ephesians 5, which is be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled. And so mark the passage, though. It's not just saying that this is just a, a doctrinal ascendancy. Like, the Holy Spirit is something to be experienced and expressed. The model that I understand, if you've never been filled with the Spirit, you can ask him because it's a gift. It's not a wage. And it's like a hug before you go to school. There is a, there is a, a posture that we can sit before the Holy Spirit in the morning and say, come and fill, my, fill me, Holy Spirit. I'm empty without you. I need you. And he'll wrap you up so close that you'd, you'd burn so tight and it would go beyond your cognition and your understanding and your, and your rhetoric and you would just, you'd be embraced in that moment to be so full of the Spirit that you know 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 that Jesus loves you. And ministry is too hard and life is too long to be done without being filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's what I think the reminder is. Not so much that there is a, a second type of, a, of a offering for Christians outside of being water baptized, but that daily we should be filled with the experience of the Holy Spirit. So, Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given on the laying on of hands, he said, this is an opportunity for business, baby. He offered them money and says, give me this ability as well so that everyone who lays hands, I lay hands on can receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter, who loves the Holy Spirit and wants him to have the Holy Spirit, knows that, that Simon can have as much of the Holy Spirit as he wants and put, put his wallet away. But the most dangerous thing is for Simon to get the Holy Spirit and thought that he earned it. So he pulls him aside for a rebuke. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart, it's not right before God. Repent of this wicked thing and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive such a thing in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Holy Spirit falls on him in verse 24. Simon answers, pray the Lord for me that nothing that you have said would happen to me. In 25, he says, after that, they further proclaim the word of the Lord, testifying about Jesus Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. The whole theme of Acts is that the actions of the Holy Spirit are easy to collude with the actions of men. It's very difficult for outsiders and insiders of the church to be able to differentiate and to make distinction between what God does and what people do. Because the reality is that the actions, the acts that are recorded in this book, are not done by people. The actions that we are reading about are all done by the Spirit of Jesus. And so he is wasting no time in our transitions, in our comings and our goings to teach us this very lesson. Uh, my previous church uh, at Bridgeway, I left uh, before coming to City Lights. I spent a year uh, in, in transition uh, teaching as my second stint in teaching. And so that was about 2015. And my wife, uh, Kyra, uh, she got a job at Napoli in Simpsonville. And she said the very first word that she heard in that establishment was the F word. It was just great. Welcome to the real world. And she said she loved it. She, we had been in the church bubble for six or seven years, and she began to kind of do ministry there with the waitresses there and, 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 
had lots of hands-on opportunity to see the gospel move forward, and it was awesome. We became part of a group, like, a, ever been part of a group that's, like, across churches, like, it's not on the website, and it's not somebody's, you know, living room with a curriculum. It's just people breaking bread and doing life, and it was lots of different churches, and we experienced, like, that koinonia of it. I went to Southside, and I remember this one time, like, I kind of just got so, like, over it. You never just get over it and just kind of, like, I mean, bored almost, or not bored, but bold because, like, there's nothing to lose and nothing to gain either. And so I just remember lecturing these kids one time about the power of purity. Like, in the middle of this computer classroom, these guys were, like, talking whack about, like, women, the girls in the class. And I'm just like, I'm just going to pull this bus over and talk about Jesus and purity. And I don't know what came over me. I never would have done it again. But it was an incredible moment to come out of church and realize what an opportunity to be in the public school system. I was realizing I was waiting to get my youth ministry job. I already had it six years ago in front of those kids and with a captive audience, no less. So I was learning the church was uh, way smaller than Jesus. That Jesus is way bigger than church. It's not even close. And I was learning an important lesson as a vocational pastor is that there's something called your job and then there's something called ministry. And ministry is way bigger than your job. I was realizing that while I was over here in church world, I was just answering emails and talking to people on the phone and basically being y'all's secretary at the best of my days so that you guys could go do the real ministry. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like sometimes we think of vocational ministry as when the ministry starts. Actually, it's when it ends. Because ministry is what we do when we're at Napoli and the restaurant and small group and all these other places. And I'm realizing the church is not made by man ultimately and built by hands. It's made by Jesus. It doesn't matter what's going on in the church you know, to, to, to define and, and, and contain what Jesus is doing in the kingdom of God. And so here's what I know about you and here's what I know about your transition is he is wasting none of the pain within your transition to teach you that you're not doing ministry that Jesus is. You're probably at a spot in your transition, this is my guess, that the tricks that you used in your old season aren't working anymore. You know why you're ticked? Because your old tricks, they don't work anymore. The old ways that you organized things and you had everything in your little sandbox, you know, you had all your buddies and you're in the youth group and everything's working out. You know where those things are? Well, they're not here anymore. To teach you what? That those weren't made by you, they were made by Jesus and he can go ahead and make some other new things for you in this season just as well as he did the last one. He's taking you to the end of your limit to show you that the things that you had in the last season weren't made by you. And it's imperative that you understand that. It's imperative that you understand that the things that were in your last season are just as replaceable as the things that, you know, he's going to bring into this new season because you have to be brought to the end of your ability to realize that you are called to do everything that you possibly can to serve the kingdom, and it's not enough. To come to the end of yourself and realize that following Jesus in grace is not sitting on the couch and just doing nothing. It is giving everything that you possibly can to his kingdom come because he's worth it and realize that at the end of yourself doing everything you can, you're still not enough. You're still not enough to run your marriage. You're still not enough to raise your kids. You're still not enough to run your ministry. And that is a beautiful place for you to get to in your transition to realize that your tricks don't work anymore. So you realize that he's the one that does the work. So it all kind of closes up to kind of teach us about what Jesus is trying to show us about our attention, our eyes and our ears, and what he's really doing in every given transition moment. So... We go out, really, even beyond the 50% Jewish. We go out to the 0% Jewish, to Ethiopia. Ethiopia was um, a coined term back then to basically mean Timbuktu, or another way of saying the ends of the earth. So here's this, here's this other individual within the sweep of this larger Samar Samaritan revival, this Ethiopian eunuch. I'll call him Eugene, but Eugene the Ethiopian eunuch is on, is on a trip. And so, um, so Philip... This, uh, this disciple who's in the middle of this revival party in Samaria where everybody's getting healed and, and saved and changed and all that stuff, he's not following the crowd, he's following the voice. 
And so the voice says not to stay in this place that is becoming more familiar, becoming more friendly, becoming more secure. The voice is calling him out into the desert to go and find Eugene. So Philip says in verse 26, well, the angel says rather, now an angel of the Lord says to Philip, go, 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 go south, go south to the road, to the desert, 80 miles on a word. One word, 80 miles in the desert, away from familiar into unfamiliar on the desert road. It goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Verse 27, so he starts out on his way and he meets the Ethiopian Timbuktu ends the earth eunuch. I mean, from far away. An important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandaki, which means queen of Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home, he was sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near. And so listen to this. As, as Philip witnesses, he hears go, so he just takes it as run. Verse 30, Philip runs to the chariot and heard the man reading the Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what Philip, uh, do you understand what you're reading, Philip asks. You know, I've, I've talked about this before. The Bible's like meditation literature. You know, it's not like a uh, a, a, a RoboCop, like one movie that you saw one time one summer. It's like more of like a Shawshank Redemption you watch like 50 times over and over, and you get something new every time. You know, like Memento or Inception. Every time you read it backwards and forwards and see it, you catch something new. So I think, I think that's exactly what this Ethiopian eunuch is doing. I think he actually read, because this passage that he's about to read to Philip to have interpreted is Isaiah 53, but I think I have a sneaking suspicion he had actually read 56 and went back. Because this is what Isaiah 56 says. This is what the Lord says, maintain justice, do what's right, for my salvation is close at hand. Verse 2, blesses the one who does this and the person who holds fast. And then verse 3, this is the part where the witness starts to hear when the eyes open and the ears listen. Verse 3, Isaiah 56 says, no foreigner, let no foreigner who is bound by the Lord say the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let no eunuch complain, I am a dry tree. A eunuch is somebody that is um, emasculated for the sake of the king's service. They're known as very great servants because they got nothing else to do, and they're super focused and locked in on the loyalty of the king or the queen. And so it says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose to please me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Eunuchs couldn't have a name. They didn't have any kids. They couldn't pass down their name biologically. To love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. And then it says this, verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted at my altar. So this is what the eunuch says to him. He says, I've been reading about, about this, this coming kingdom that's going to not reject but accept me. It's going to allow an outsider to become an insider, and I can't quite get my mind around it, and I feel like as I chew it backwards and forwards that my spirit is led to this verse. This is the passage of Scripture that he was reading. He was led like sheep to a slaughter. Who is this? A lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth, and in his humiliation deprived of justice, who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And so I love the power of questions. One thing we talk about at tables and small groups is just the power of an intentional question. How are you doing? Who are you tempted to compare yourself to? Where is your joy? Are you resting? 
Well, these questions that we can ask, these questions, I mean, basically, God called him out of a revival party to travel 80 miles off of one word to ask one question. Do you understand what you're reading about? And here's what I love about it. Like, God will tell you all about how much he trusts you based on the test that he gives you. Like, the main, like, the, I, I, love, I love, like, some of the major ways that God has used me ever to lead people to Jesus. There's this one girl I told you guys about on this one summer. Uh, we're doing an Ocean City, New Jersey boardwalk uh, mission trip. And this girl comes to me. There's this one guy, Isaac, that I'd, you know, done initiative evangelism all summer, and he led 27 people to Jesus. He led 27 people to Jesus. How many did, did old Pastor Oliver lead to Jesus that summer? Zero people to Jesus, me, you know, by myself. And, uh, and so everybody had gone away, and this one little girl comes to me, and she basically says, this is the same exact question, same exact question as this Ethiopian eunuch asked, what must I do to be saved? This girl comes to me, she's 12 years old, says, how do I save? And I tried to run her through the whole survey and teach her. It's like, no, she had already made her decision a lot the way that this eunuch did. This is T-ball evangelism, right? He sets the little thing on here, and if you've ever been to a Bible study class or, a, or stayed half awake for half of a sermon or showed up to a Sunday school class, you know what the answer is. What's the answer to every Bible school question? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with the passage of Scripture and told him the good news, and here's the answer, if anybody ever asked you that, Jesus is the answer, right? So there you go. Now you're fully equipped and ready to go. What is the point? What is the point? What's the point? This is the question. Who is saving the eunuch? Who is saving the eunuch? Well, verse 36 says, they traveled along the road and they came to the water, and it's not Philip that suggested it. The eunuch says, look, here is the water. Who can stand in my way of being baptized since all the barriers have been broken down of the Jewish code? Verse 38, and he gave orders to stop the chariot. It was the eunuch that told them to stop the chariot. And then Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. Philip baptizes him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly takes Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azostus and traveled about preaching the gospel in the towns until he uh, reached Caesarea. So the whole point is, well, it's not really Philip's gig. He, has, he like basically asked one question and then said the word Jesus, and that was all that needed to take, right? Well, then you move to the eunuch, and you're like, well, the eunuch kind of was doing the Bible study, and the eunuch told the, pulled the chariot over, and the eunuch found the water, and the eunuch said to be baptized. But really, as you look at the last of that verse, it's not really Philip or the eunuch. Who is it? It's Jesus. It's the spirit of Jesus, and it's not, you know this, there is not one sign and wonder on this evangelistic crusade. There's not one healing. There's not one sign. There's not wonder. It's just the spirit of Jesus. There's not even a New Testament. There's just one little scrap of a scripture that could mess with somebody's heart for long enough that the soil would be turned and the, the evangelists could go out and just say the word Jesus, and they would want to get baptized. And then at the end, there's this transportation where this guy apparently gets taken up physically just to remind the reader, just to remind the reader what Simon the sorcerer cannot understand is that this thing is not done by money, right, in hands, in, in human hands. It's done by Jesus. It's always been Jesus. Jesus was in the chariot. Jesus had the chariot, and Jesus was already on the other side of the chariot. And so this is why it's so, so important in a modern age when our phones are buzzing constantly, and we're constantly inundated with attention deficit disorder, and all these things are pulling us other ways. Like, we don't live in Acts chapter 8, but we have a Saul that is bullying us. There is something that I guarantee you, if I sat down with you, in terms of your journey and your path and your road, the thing that God's calling to you on, it is terrifying you. You have a paralysis in you in some place. Maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your ministry, I don't know where it is, but there is something that is immovable, that is immovable, and is continuing to talk to you, right? And this is, this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, I'm in this with you, 
And, and, and instead of ignoring that pain, he says, I want you to come to me with it. I want you to mourn in your pain that you might find comfort because I'm in this with you. If it's not for the bully, the other thing that, right, that, that's going to get you, if it's not the bullying of Saul, it's going to be the bribery of Simon. It's going to be either your attention focused on what you're doing and your abilities and how you did it and what your plans are and what your failure is and what your track record is or what somebody else did or what their track record is. And the last thing you're paying attention to as you're getting bribed by the spirit of Simon is focusing on the spirit of Jesus. And both of these things, whether it's a Saul or a Simon, are trying to pull you off the road. But this is the deal, is that witnesses don't get to Timbuktu without attention on Jesus. We cannot afford to give any attention to our bullies or our bribes and lose our attention on Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that's saving, Jesus is the one that's healing, and Jesus is the one that's delivering, and so it's not on us, it's on him. And he is on the other side of this thing, all the way to Timbuktu and beyond, bringing the kingdom of Jesus and and, and bringing in eunuchs uh, far and wide, drawing the nations to himself. And so this is, I think, what would be the profitable question to be asking ourselves at the end of a chapter like this, is just simply this question, is like, where is Jesus working? The truth is, is that you're not going anywhere this week that Jesus already isn't. He's not, he's not saying, here's a problem uh, in which you need to bring God where he's needed. He's saying, here's my presence where you can join God where he's working. He is already in the chariot. He's already moving the chariot. He already has the whole thing set up, and he already knew 10 years ago where you were 10 years ago, and he's waiting for you to show up to it because he's in it, he's got it, and he's on the other side. So where is Jesus working? And so then the prerogative question just becomes, how can I join him in what he's already doing? This is the good news, I think, that... Um, in a transition season, we're actually in a great place. Because when you get pulled away from your comforts, and I mean, anything from like your in-laws and your parents and the, and the comfortable rhythms of the things that open up in vacancies, all of those vacancies are opportunities to learn to lean on him. In these transitions, as you're stripped away from what's behind, as you make decisions about what's in the future, you're actually in a fantastic moment to recognize what you're seeing is only what he's already said. And this whole thing is a setup that he is with you in your chariot, that he has your chariot, and he's on the other side of that thing waiting for you to join him in what he's already doing. And so this is my invitation, I guess, to myself and to all of us, is to do the word search. And as you are looking out on your calendar and as you're looking out in your week, where is he working? Does he have your attention or is your attention somewhere else? Is your attention on the bully? Is your attention on the bribe? Or is your attention on him, on Jesus? Because where he is working is where we're called. Where we're called. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. 